0: Welcome to Cooper Talk, I'm your host Steve Cooper and remember I'm only as hip as my guest. I gotta tell you something people, I'm a New Jersey guy. I grew up here, I went to high school here, I went to college here, but when I was 30 I moved away to LA for 20 years, but I came back 4 years ago and my guest today is Jersey Royalty. And I say that I don't I don't bullshit you. He whether it be the East Street Band, his work with them, his work with Southside Johnny, his work, his solo work, his work with the Sopranos. He is the man, and I think today he might enlighten us if it's Taylor Pork Roll or Taylor Ham. And my guest is Little Steven. How you doing, man?
1: Yeah, Steve. How you doing, man?
0: Good. Now, did you are you familiar with the, the whole Taylor Pork Roll and Taylor Ham battle? <laughs> I am not. <laughs> well, it was all the people from North Jersey called it ham, and all the people from South Jersey called it pork roll, and everyone bitches at each other all the time. So it's just one of those little insights that we have. I don't
1: know. I, I, I'm uh, I'm a philosophical vegan, so
0: I, I don't know. I guess no we have a lot to go over today, but I want to start off with uh, the show Lillehammer, because that, to me, was one of the best shows. A guy I knew in L.A. grew up in Norway. He was a boom operator. And he calls me one day, and he says, Coop, Coop, you got to watch this show. Little Steven's in it. It's called Lillehammer. How did that show even come to happen? Because it's just so weird, a TV show in Norway.
1: It is uh, quite unique. I-, I don't think anybody's ever seen anything quite like it. Um... I was in Norway, uh, uh, mixing one of my bands so on my, on my record label. I I'd signed a bunch of Norwegian bands and, uh, they said there's a husband and wife uh, in, in the lobby want to say hello. Went down and they said, listen, we've written a TV show for you. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's not something you hear every day. And, uh, and, 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 you know, and they, and they gave me the one sentence pitch, which was, um, uh, gangster goes into witness protection and he chooses Lily Norway you know so I was like oh man I just played a gangster for 10 years I really you know I probably shouldn't do this <laughs> but uh, I couldn't resist I, I, I couldn't resist the craziness of, of, of starring in a foreign country's local TV show you know and um, they really wanted to be involved so they said you know you'll be a, you'll be co-producer you'll be a co-writer. You know, you'll star in it and, you know, do whatever you want. So I figured, you know, well, if I have that much control, if I can control the scripts and I can control the production to some extent, um, I'm going to take a shot. I'm going to take a shot with it. And uh, um, we uh, ended up signing with Netflix as their first TV show. Um, That's why people are still discovering it to this day, uh, a lot during the quarantine. Uh, but, you know, Netflix wasn't quite sure what to do. You know, they, they had just started creating content, and we were literally the very first show. So, uh, uh, you know, it didn't get a whole lot of attention at the time. And we only did 24 shows. We did eight shows a year for three years. And uh, it just turned out to be, um, you know, they, they were mostly comedy writers, but I said, I don't want to do a straight comedy you know, I, I, it's got to be more of a what we call a dramedy where you can have some serious moments in it. And, um, you know, I can't, I, I can't make fun of this, these gangster guys. I mean, they, you know, I got to live in New York, first of all. But, uh, you know, I, you got to have, have some respect for this. Uh-oh, here's my dog. Uh, hold on. Hold that thought. Don't move. Don't move. <laughs> sorry about that. Sorry about that. Anyway, so... so uh, yeah, so, so we you know, we, ended, we ended up with no nobody was watching us. You know, we could kind of do whatever we wanted to. And um, and we uh, we, you know, we spent a year writing that thing to try and figure out how funny should it be, how much English should there be in it. It was really quite an experiment, you know, um, knowing that Americans didn't like subtitles. Um, but uh, it was really a ballsy move for Netflix to pick that as their first show and having it be mostly subtitles. Uh, but it turned out to be, you know, if, if, if there's one character speaking English, um, the, the, the audience will follow that person into a foreign country, and then they're kind of experiencing Norway through my character's eyes. And uh, so suddenly the, sub, the subtitles just faded away, is what people told me. And, uh, they, you know, a lot of people were watching that show for the first time, Uh, you know, never having watched something with subtitles before. So it got, uh, it got, it's getting more popular. To tell you the truth, it's getting more popular as the years goes by.
0: What was your experience writing TV? Because, you know, you come from a background of writing music and they're two different, two different monsters. And, you know, there's a lot of dialogue. People don't understand, you know, when you write a script, you know, it's 44 pages for an hour and then people, things get cut down and stuff. How did you translate overdoing that from, your music and was it hard writing with Norwegian writers
1: well we we spent a year figuring out the characters and um you know the basic premise premises and uh um in the end you know I I, they wanted to do first drafts and I did I only did the first draft on the final episode of each season um so we just bounced it back and forth you know um they, um they had conceived of of, of the characters and and, and and did terrific casting I mean those 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 actors were just so great and um and then I would I would you know usually write or rewrite my my own whatever I said you know the, you wanted to you know they wanted to be authentic so I would I would I would you know usually rewrite or write everything that came out of my mouth and um, you know, and, and and then rewrite some of the scenes. You know, back and forth. We, we bounce it back and forth, and and, uh, and um, you know, mostly it worked that way. Um, and then I and then I would do a first draft. I did the first draft on, on the last episodes, um, and and um, and you know, and and then they would and then they would, you know, bounce things back to me. So we go back and forth. And uh, the, the 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 tough part was 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 adjusting the Norwegian actors and directors. Uh, they didn't have a TV culture in Norway, so they were treating TV like the movies, which meant, you know, in, in the in the movie world, the directors are in charge, and in the TV world, the writers in charge. It's very different. Um, so. Uh, they were treating the script at first and the directors over there were treating the script like an outline, you know, which is what movie people do. And I was like, no, no, no. Uh, we, this is not going to work. <laughs> you know. We got to make some adjustments here because, first of all, every word counts. And second of all, you know, we can't have the actors improvising in Norwegian. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, uh, I'm not going to know <laughs> when to talk and when not to talk so I think you know I had to get the actors out of the habit of, of, of improvising and get the directors out of the habit of taking a script and then doing what they felt like with it you know um, so it was, you know some adjustment on both sides I, I also adjusted to their methodology um, they like to be creative right up until the last minute and I got into that I actually got into that you know, I said we can't have long discussions on a set, but we, you know, there's just no time for that. But you know, um, uh, we can make suggestions off the set, and, and also, I because I was the only writer on the set most of the time, and the only producer. You know, uh, I'm, I'm I'm adjusting the lighting or, or people's wardrobe, or I'm, I'm, I'm writing right up until right up until they say action. Uh, so, you know, and and it made me a better actor by by not having time to think about the acting. You know, uh, thinking about everything else, and then when you know when it was when it was action, it was like boom, I'm that guy, I'm in that situation, you know, and there was no there was no kind of overthinking, you know. So in the end, the experience made me a much better actor.
0: We also did the score for it, and then the opening song is great because it catches you. It's 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 jazzy. It hits you, and you come from a show like The Sopranos, whose opening song was just such legendary. Like people knew on Sunday nights, you heard, you know, you knew you said a song. But your song was very catchy. Was that in mind when you said, "I really, I'm I'm coming from the Sopranos"? People knew that song. I gotta catch something that just punches you in the face, and your song does punch you because it's it's fun. But it's cool. Like it gives you a, a good upbeat. I mean, when you wrote that, how was your process for writing that opening song?
1: I, I figured, you know, we are mixing. We got a, we got a shotgun marriage of New York and 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 and, and Oslo, right? Um, so I'm gonna write a New York jazzy, you know, opening, and then I'm gonna have a Norwegian folk music bridge. You know, I'm going to have this thing morph into a, into a Norwegian song. And that, and that's what, and that's what it is. So I combined, um, I got, I got a Norwegian jazz band and uh, did the front, and and, and, uh, and a Norwegian folk band with the, with the Norwegian folk instruments, uh, doing that, doing the, uh, you know, uh, the the the, uh, the uh, what's it called, hardanger hardanger violins. They have the special special uh, kinds of uh, violins, and um, and that was it. You know, combining jazz and and, and, and Norwegian folk, just like the show is combining you know new york with, with oslo and, and and our thought was you know as each year progressed you know my character became a little bit more norwegian and uh, the guys around me became a little bit more uh, gangster in new york you know and uh you know we we're, we were kind of slowly uh merging into each other um but it was a wonderful experience really and, and uh one of the great experiences of my life, really. So much, so much, uh, it wasn't easy, but it was but it was fun to, to see the result.
0: Now, you've released on two different albums the, the score from that. When you score it, you're already, as a producer, you're already writing, you're already the star. How did you find time to score? I mean, did you sit there and did you have, in the beginning of the season, an idea of how you wanted music to arc out? Or did you have to wait till every script was done and go, hey, you know what? this will pop in good. This, I'm going to snig in the bar here. How do you, how do you do that? Um,
1: it's really, um, you know, in, in this case, no, I I mostly did it in post. I mean, it was just like, okay, everything's been filmed, you know, and now you're in post. And, um, because you know, if you, if you if you start doing too much before the edit, pro- the editing process is done. Uh, you are going to keep changing the the music, and, and and editing it in different ways so it makes sense. So, uh, you know, you try and make, wait for the editing process to be done in, in in post. So you're like the last thing that happens. Um, you know, they, they may do uh they, they may do some some other you know colorizing you know you know uh, 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 whatever it's called you know, there's a couple of processes that may be after you but it's pretty much the last the last the last process of, of, of post so I would do it you know one show at a time and um, again you know mix mixing mixing some New York jazz in there mixing some folk music or whatever the scene called for we have the first album maybe it's a two album set and the first album is all jazz and the second album is uh, everything from Norwegian folk music to Indian music for a scene, to a salsa for a scene. You know, we went to we went to Rio. You know, in the show and uh, and uh, there was a scene from some some guys from India coming in, and you know we you know anything we could think of we we were doing. It was really the the first international show in every respect. You know, not only was it the first internationally distributed show because of Netflix. Uh, but it was also the first show that was just really, you know, we, we brought in some British guys, did a second season, and, uh, you know, the different different ethnic groups from, from different, from, you know, like I said, we went to, we went to Rio for the, for the third season, you know, and um, it, was just, uh, it was just like whatever you could think of, you can do, you know.
0: Now, you have a box set out, uh, and yeah, the Maka to Mecca was, is now included in that, what do the Beatles mean to you? I talked to so many musicians that say their whole life changed the day they saw that. How did your life change? And before you saw them, did you love music, or or how did this? How did they influence you?
1: No, I had bought some singles. You know, I was just a kid not buying, you know, buying singles. I didn't really, um, I, I had no relationship to, to show business at all, or, or you know. Uh, not thinking about doing it certainly and um, wasn't really even associating songs with the groups that much Uh, I just was kind of you know I'd hear I had a dozen singles but I had no real desire to go see the see the artists really Uh, I had gone to a couple shows Um, and then you know February 9th 1964 like everybody else you know the Beatles come on this variety show and um I never seen anything like it. There was, there was nothing ever even close to compare it to. Um, never seen a band before, because, you know, we had mostly individuals around in those days or duop groups, singing groups. You know, if you went to your high school uh, dance, it was an instrumental group. You know, nobody sang. Um, so here's a group singing and playing and, of course, eventually writing their own songs. And uh, their hair was perfect. The harmony was perfect. The clothes were perfect. Uh, so they revealed this wild new world uh, that you had no idea existed, uh, which was the most exciting thing to me because I needed a new world. I was not relating to the world that I had. So uh, this one was was a, a complete epiphany, you know, and, and a revelation and. Um, but but I, I I have to connect it to to four months later when the Rolling Stones came because um, the Beatles were so perfect. You know, I mean, keep in mind we 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 uh, got introduced to the Beatles halfway through the career. You know, they started like '57; they were gone by '69. So you know, by the time we saw them, they were extraordinarily sophisticated and just. Very, very, very good. So you didn't look at the Beatles and say, "Well, I, maybe I can do that." You know, the, it was a, it was a wild new experience of, of an entirely a glimpse in a new world. But but you didn't you didn't think for a minute you could do it. Four months later, Rolling Stones come, and they're wearing what they feel like, and the hair is not perfect uh, except for Brian Jones, and uh, and there's no harmony really, and. Uh, and most importantly for me, Mick Jagger, uh, the first guy in show business I'd ever seen that didn't smile. And I thought, wow, this is this is no longer show business. This is something different. This is um, this is a, a life a lifestyle, you know. So, like the way I like to put it, is the Beatles revealed a new world, and the Rolling Stones invited us in.
0: Now then, where do you go from there? I mean, you know, it's like do you sit there all of a sudden and go? I got to start playing a guitar or do you sit there and yeah. say, I want to sing. I mean, what was your progress? Cause it's just, it's one of those things when you see something like that's a good thing about music. If you see someone who plays football and you're like, Oh, that's great. And you go and you throw a football and you suck. There's a good chance. You're not going to get better at football. Or if you're, let's say five, two, did you just pick up a guitar? And, and once you picked it up, did you know that you had this skill? Cause you're a great guitar player and you've had a great body of work.
1: No, I, I had been playing guitar just a little bit earlier uh, because my grandfather uh, was showing me uh, a song from his village in Calabria. So I, I had started to play a little bit before that. But um, that certainly accelerated my interest in the guitar, uh, for sure. And, and um, no, you start off terrible. And, and uh, you know, you just stay at it, stay at it, and stay at it. And... Uh, I mean, the guitar is one of those things. If you if you stay at it, within six months, you're gonna you know you're gonna get some sound out of it. You know, you're gonna get something out of it, and uh, you know so so you know within 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 a year or two. Um, um, I started off. I, I joined a band as a singer, and then by well, I say I don't know by '66, middle of '66, I had my own band. So. I would have been playing maybe a year, maybe a year and a half, you know, and um, and and so you just keep getting better as you go. But um, yeah, just, you know, first as a singer and, and, and then as a guitar player. As soon as I could play guitar, I started my own band, and, and um, you know, and and I I, I go you know, I go through the five stages of you know there's five this five stages of, 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 of rock and roll craft. I just I spent the whole quarantine writing a book, so it's it's in the book. It'll be it'll be coming out at the end of September. I I'll talk about this in great detail, but but basically, um, you just start your journey of those five crafts. Uh, the first one being the instrument, and and, and um, you know, and in those days, you didn't have to be great to be in a band. You know, you just you know as long as you could play a little bit. You know, follow the chords, you know, of the songs, uh, and then you just got better as you as you went.
0: Now, what was the Jersey scene like? Like when you met Bruce and Southside Johnny, was there a burgeoning Jersey scene, or what was it like? Because you guys, you know, I there's there's a it's hard to explain to people who aren't. From the Jersey area, there, there's a certain sound, you know, and, and you get it like Southside Johnny, and I, I think we got fed on it because living ten minutes from Philadelphia in New Jersey, we heard MMR, we heard YSP, we heard the early the early music. But what was the Jersey sound when you met Bruce and when you met Southside Johnny? What was the scene like?
1: Well, we were the luckiest generation ever because um, uh, they were catering to our age group. You know, the world the world was catering to the baby boomers and we had all kinds of places to play uh, beach clubs and VFW halls and high school dances and 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 literally um, clubs that were built for teenagers for us you know I, I, I haven't seen that before or since um, so so um, the, the the teenage rock scene if you will you know, was pretty free, pretty, pretty wide open actually. Um, you know, nobody was really sophisticated enough to know what was going on. You know, rock and roll was still new enough that the adults, uh, didn't pay much attention to it. You know, they didn't, they didn't know what was good or bad or right or wrong. So you kind of did whatever you felt like when you were in your teenage band, you know? Uh, and, um, I was doing, you know, we were doing some, some of the songs on the radio, of course. But in those days, the top forty, the 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 pop hits of the day were the grit was the greatest music being made. You know, you'd be playing, you know, you are playing Beatles songs and Rolling Stone songs and and the uh, kinks and, and the Who and the Animals and you know, all this great, great stuff. All of which were hits, you know, which were pop pop hits so you know in addition to some soul stuff temptations and sam and dave um and then i started doing some album stuff you know the who's first album of the springfield youngbloods um uh, so 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 th- there's about a dozen of us you know i mean the the, the day the, the day before the beatles played there wasn't one band in jersey the, the day after they played everybody had a band in the garage everybody and. Most of them stayed there, uh, you know. M- m- you know, <laughs> uh, <mercifully, laughs> merciful, merciful. Uh, uh, but, 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 but about a dozen of us got out of the garage. I had a band. Bruce had a band. You know, and you got to know each other from being on the circuit because there wasn't that many bands. And uh, so that was that scene. And then it, it, it you know. Um, uh, migrated down to Asbury Park because of this club called Upstage. And uh, there again uh, was an odd place. open from 8 to 5. You had to be 16, I think, to get in. No booze. But again, you could play anything you wanted. So uh, that's where we kind of got our chops together and, and really took it to the next level of, of, of musicianship. And then finally, you graduate to the bar scene. Now, the bar scene is a whole nother scene because that is strictly top 40. So by the time we get to the bar scene in the 70s, top 40 isn't so cool anymore. Uh, So we don't want to do that. And we uh, luckily found this club, Stone Pony, that was going to close. The the roof had caved in from a hurricane or something. And uh, they are going to stay open for another four or five weeks, milk whatever tourism was left of that summer, you know. And, uh, and so we went in there, we're kind of in a good position to negotiate. And we said, listen, we don't want to charge you anything. We'll play for the door. You take the bar, but we're going to play whatever we want. And that was not allowed, but they said, okay, because they were going to close anyway, you know, they didn't care. So, uh, we kind of broke the rules there and, um, uh, and you know, first week there was fifty people, then hundred, then two hundred, and they fixed the roof. You know, and uh, and uh, so, so this is this is Southside the Asbury Jukes now. Um, and then uh, and then uh, Bruce gets signed to a record label, which was a big deal. But his first two records don't do anything, so he can't work now. Because once you're in the business. It's a different scene than playing locally. You know, you, you're going to play in the showcase clubs around around the country, and you know, and eventually, in those days, you had tour support from the record company, which is a, you know, a miracle. But that eventually runs out, so he couldn't work. So he's he's coming down, and hanging out with us, and um, you know, we got it. We we had a residency, and, and and it was one of those residencies that turned into a scene it was just uh, you know we just had ended up with a thousand people a night uh, three nights a week and then um, he had success Southside Johnny got signed had success I got signed and you know uh, sort of had success and uh, you know between the three of us you know it kind of created this this uh, this 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 you know, this impression of a of a real scene going on down there. And, and 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 it was, you know. And then you know, and then even later later on, even by bon Jovi getting signed, who wasn't really part of the scene. He was throwing different different part of the Jersey, but that added to the Jersey thing, you know. Uh, you know, and that was it. What is it
0: like for you, because I know you're very, you're socially conscious, you know, it goes back to Sun City or, you know, you're political. What is it like for you for someone who saw the early days of Asbury Park and how Asbury Park has gone through the ups and downs? It's like for me, when I was a kid, we went to Atlantic City. Well, then, you know, my parents would take us there, but then when by the time I'm 18, nobody wants to go to Atlantic City. What is it like to for you, for someone who saw Asbury and then saw its ups and downs? Is it, is it painful to you to look at that?
1: well yeah it was it, it was it really laid dormant for a lot a long time and um and i i really regret you know I, I wish we had we should have bought upstage the upstage club uh we should have found a way to buy it and turn it into a museum or something because it was such a it was such a unique club and um Rock and roll sacred sites are just not honored. They are not kept. You know, they 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 tend to be uh, they tend to be overlooked and, and just you know replaced. And it's a shame. Um, but it was it was. I'm not sure when it completely became a ghost town because it was half a ghost town already. Um, the riots had happened end of the 60s. So. That chased most of the people out of town, uh, but, they, but they kept the amusements on the boardwalk for quite a while while we were playing a pony. I remember that the Ferris wheel was still there and, and, and all that. Uh, so it must've been somewhere in the eighties, I guess, after we left town, uh, it finally uh, just kind of stopped. And for, I don't know, 20 years at least, End of the eighties, nineties, two thousands. You know, 20, 20 25 years. There was just nothing there, and uh, and now it's it's coming back to life. It's uh, it's nice to see it. Nice to see
0: it. Now, how did you end up being part of the East Street Band? What there's got to be a certain story. I mean, you knew everyone. You wrote for people. I mean, you wrote for stuff. I mean, you're you're a known guy. You know, with the Hawaiian shirt and Miami Steve. And uh, how did you end up being part of Bruce?
1: It was simply a matter of... uh, Bruce wanted to put the guitar down and start fronting the band, you know. Uh, You know, we we had already been friends for for years before that. Um, And, you know, I I was ready to get out of town. You know, I was kind of... I was feeling a little bit claustrophobic. Uh, You know, I was in the Jukes, but I was also managing them, and uh, I don't know. I just felt like I needed to move on a little bit. So, um, Bruce, you know, had... Uh, a third record coming out, and um, his career was in trouble. And he had about—I think he booked about seven gigs. You know, they managed to book seven shows, um, and, and then the record was going to come out and either do something miraculous or or not. And so I joined him for seven those seven shows, so he could put the guitar down. And he figured, you know, let me try and maybe. A, a, by fronting the band, maybe, you know, we'll get a little bit more attention and you know, we'll just, you know, be able to to maybe, you know, find a way to break through. And that's kinda of what happened. Uh you know, he kinda of started to transform himself into this amazing front man, which one of the most amazing transformations of a human being I've ever seen. Uh, because he was very, very quiet and shy and introverted as a as a kid when we were growing up, and now he's like the world's greatest entertainer, and uh, and and that was and that was quite a trip to see that transformation. But that was the beginning of it, you know. By by fronting the band, he had to become this other persona, uh, you know, and and and, um, and that was the beginning of of uh, of, of uh, I went for seven shows. And I stayed seven years. Yeah.
0: What is it like to be on that meteoric rise? I mean, you sit there and you're going from okay, seven shows, he's in trouble, and all of a sudden you're like, "Holy crap, he's on the cover of Time, <laughs> you know, Newsweek." I mean, for yeah, you, yeah. and it must have brought a whole new international recognition to you because you're you know you got the look, you got the scarf, you know, you, you're you're sitting there. How? What is that like to just start to feel it? Do you just is, was it gradually going up, or was it just? shotgun once board run came out uh,
1: it was it was sort of an up and down thing because we 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 do the showcase shows at the bottom line which was the new york showcase club at the time it's no longer there and then we did the la showcase shows at the roxy which which is still there thankfully um and we were really blown minds you know people weren't ready for us We were probably, we had probably the longest gestation of starting to play and actually making it in the business than anybody. I mean, we had been playing bars and clubs by then, you know, 10 years. Uh, You know, so we were really good live. We knew what we were doing live. And people were not ready for that level of, you know, of quality and, And we were quite aggressive because we were coming from being a a dance band in the Stone Pony. You know, you had to make people dance. People were still dancing to rock and roll back then. And when you were a dance band, which is how the Beatles started and Stones and the Who, um, you have an additional sort of aggressiveness uh, that has to pull those people out of the chair and make them dance you know and, and when you carry that into the concert world and it makes you more intense you're just, you're just you're just a more far more intense band than the typical concert band especially for la at the time so we kind of knocked everybody out and and um uh, yeah well uh, it was exciting uh, you know you've seen all these movie stars the first time in the audience and then time and newsweek happened which is uh really freaky because nobody had ever heard of him what's he doing on time and newsweek i think at that point there'd been like five people who made time and newsweek the same week and they were all like popes or presidents or you know uh astronauts maybe. Uh, you know, here's this unknown <laughs> rock and roll guy. What the hell is he doing on you know? So people were kinda coming to the shows almost to to see what what is this phenomenon, you know. Uh is it hype? Is it jive? Is it real? Of course, you know, we, we would blow their minds. They would they would leave saying, Oh, now I get it. But but anyways, it was exciting and then and then and then it stopped, right? You know, the time of Newsweek, the Born to Run thing, very exciting. And then, boom, he gets into a lawsuit with his manager, and, and Dark is on the edge of town. It comes this long process. It seemed seemed long at the time. You know, it's like two years or, or three years, maybe, of just grinding it out in the studio and the lawsuits. and couldn't really work and uh and so we we got some help from frank barcelona a friend of ours who became our agent and managed to survive until the river at which point we finally um recorded our first hit five albums in five albums before we had a hit and so you know up for Born to Run, you know, it's all new to us and exciting. Kind of down for the darkness on the edge of town, and then up for the river for good. Um, having that first hit single was amazingly exciting. And um, all of a sudden we went from, you know, clubs, really, in half-filled theaters to selling out arenas, just like that, you know? Um you know, and, and, and never
0: look back. Now, where did you learn your showmanship? I've heard that, you know, well, for for the reason the Sopranos came up was because David Chase saw you give an award and he just liked your persona. But do you just, did, were you always, you know, so charismatic on stage? Or was there a time like you, when you were younger, you were just like, eh, I, don't, I don't really like these people?
1: I, I don't, I don't, I'm not conscious of it. I. I, I all I can tell you is that growing up, in the period that I call a renaissance and I call it a renaissance because when the greatest art being made is also the most commercial, it's a renaissance. And, and you know, I grew up, you know, I saw the Beatles, you know, I saw the Stones with Brian Jones. I saw the, the Who with Keith Moon, um, you know, Jeff Beck with Rod Stewart, um, you know, and, and, and so you're just, you're just trying to rise to their, level of quality and, and the rise to that standard, which was set very early, you know, the entire 60s was just, and, and even the 50s, you know, everybody was a great performer. Everybody was great. I mean, everybody was great. And uh, in our minds, we you know, we'll never be that great. You know, so you, so you kind of, it keeps you kind of hungry and kind of, uh, you know, trying to, you know, working harder at, at being as good as you can be, um, and you know the performance just kind of comes naturally. You know, you're you're communicating the songs that you're playing, whether you're the front man in my in my with the disciples of soul, or whether you're the guitar player in E Street Band, um, or whatever. You're you're communicating that song, and um, and in a way, you're acting out that song, especially if you're the front man. Um and that's it. You know, so, I don't know. Just kind of you kind of just uh, do what comes naturally, I guess.
0: Now, does the songwriting come naturally to you? Do you are you there's someone who sits there and can write a song in 2 minutes like I've heard people say they wake up and they go it's written or are you one of the people who are very um I used to do stand-up comedy and when you would sit there you would go over a joke over and over and you'd be like, "Ah, you know what? Shit, that didn't work because I said you know the wrong word, and you look at it like this art, and it's like, no, it didn't work because your timing was off. But for you, how do you when you write a song? Does it come right to you, or are you someone who's very meticulous in it?
1: No, it's not easy, and and I and I I tend to um, I only write I write with purpose. You know, I, I have to have a reason. Uh, if I don't have a purpose, I don't I don't write. It. I don't I know I might not even touch a guitar in between tours. Uh, I'm, I'm doing other things you know my mind is on other things so um, it's it's, it's um, I, I need a, a reason to do it you know, I, you know I'm about to make a new album what do I want to say what do I want to do but like right now I'm not writing and, 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 I, and I won't write until I, I have a reason to write
0: well, I want to get back to Maka to Mecca. What was it like to play in that club? Was it just something that it's like, as a kid, It be I guess if you were like a little leaguer and then you became a baseball star, and someone said, hey, you know what, you can go back to old, old Yankee Stadium back when Ruth and all those people were around. Was it like that? Was it like an oh shit moment when you hit that stage and you went, this is why I am where I am and everything I've accomplished?
1: Yeah, yeah, it really you really do get a sense of, of, of that yeah, a sense of, you know, gratitude is, is the main, is the main emotion. I think, uh, you know, how did I get to this place where the Beatles started, you know, wow. You know, uh, and it was, this. it was this fun. And, uh, I think it was especially fun the way we did it because about a week before we got to Liverpool, um, I'm thinking, you know, I remember reading the Beatles used to play these things called lunchtime sets. And, uh, you know, which is just a crazy British eccentricity, you know, uh, the shopkeepers and the clerks would bring their lunches to the club and the Beatles would play for half an hour. I mean, how weird is that? You know, it's it's just, it's just a weird thing to do, right? And uh, I thought, you know, I said, call the Cavern, tell them we're playing Liverpool Saturday night but I want to come in Saturday afternoon to the cavern and do a lunchtime set, you know? And they're uh, like, uh, whatever, okay. And the cavern, the cavern guy was funny. He's like, oh, we haven't done that in like 50 years, but why not? Uh, and, uh, you know, now they, they, they have two stages there. And one, they, they you know, it's like, like the old stage with the, with the arches, and it's very small. It's like a tunnel you can see it in the dvd um and and then and then uh, there's another room which is bigger and they assumed that i wanted to play the bigger room i got a 14 piece band right and i said no I, I gotta see those arches because there's one film of the beatles playing the cavern the, uh, the only one i've ever seen and they're playing some other guy and and, and you see the arches over the stage this is a small like, like a tunnel and, uh, and I said, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta be in that room. That's, you know what I mean? I don't, you know, so uh, we put the rhythm section there and then it's like a partition and like a hallway going to the bathrooms. And we put the horns and the girls in the hallway <laughs> and we, we, we couldn't even see them the whole set. Uh, and we did it that way. And, and um, you know, this was, was just a lot of fun.
0: How do you select the song? How did you select your playlist for that one? Was it, was it tough because are you curating or are you saying I'm going to do early stuff because it's the early days? Or how are you figuring it out? It's like, it's like when people say to me, what's your favorite Springsteen song? I go, where do you want me to start? And it's like, I can't. You know, they're like, I go, it depends what mood I'm in. You know. And again, right. for that, what was it like for you to put it together? Because one, you're like, holy crap, this is a holy crap moment. And then you're like, I want to deliver. I want to play what means the most to me.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, that's a very good question. Well, the, the sort of first thing I thought to myself, you know, let, let's, let's, uh, let's do the songs that no one's ever seen live, which is the Beatles songs with horns, okay, which, you know, uh, Magical Mystery Tour and Good Morning and All You Need Is Love, you know. Uh, and I said, you know, what people forget is the Beatles not only turned us on to the major pioneers, you know, Little Richard, Chuck Berry, Buddy Holly, but they also turned us on to more obscure people like Larry Williams and Arthur Alexander, who i never heard of. So I said, I'm going to do, let's do half the set Beatles songs with horns. And the other half, we're going to do songs that the Beatles would have covered when they played the cavern. Okay. So that's what we did. You know, we did Slow Down by Larry Williams. We did uh, Soldier of Love by Arthur Alexander. And, uh, and then, you know, and then. Magical Mystery Tour and, and the Horn Songs, and uh, it turned out to be a, a, a good a good combination, uh, you know. And, uh, and of course the the album, you know, the album section. It's, it's part of the Soul Fire box, but for those who already have the Soul Fire box, you can get Maca to Mecca* separately. And um, it starts with um, uh, Paul McCartney came on stage with us. At the London Roundhouse, you know, at, at the beginning of the tour, which was literally the thrill of my life. I mean, one of the very, very top thrills of my entire life. Um, and and uh, so that's how that's how the album begins. And then and that's Macca. His 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 his, uh, his nickname is Macca McCartney. And since rock and roll is my religion, Liverpool is my mecca. That's the Macca. It's a mecca. But I had, I, had, uh, I had pulled in, I had, I had come in late to the sound check because uh, I, I was fulfilling another fantasy the night before, uh, doing a little cameo for, for Marty Scorsese and the Irishman. And um, so I flew in and, and, and we just got to the sound check very late. And uh, right before the end of the sound check, you know, they want to let the people in. And I just walked in and I get a phone call Paul McCartney might be coming to the show. I'm like, oh man, we gotta, 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 prepare something just in case, right? And uh, I threw a little Richard uh, arrangement into. I saw us standing there, which was an early, an early Paul uh, song, Beatles song. And sure enough, he shows up, and uh, and and, um, and I said, Paul, just you know, you, I'm so honored that you kind of came to the show. You're working all the time. You know, you never go out, you never socialize anymore, just constantly touring. I said, you're here with your wonderful wife, wife Nancy, sit with my wife, Maureen, and have a good time, and uh, don't feel any obligation to come on stage, really, you know. And uh, that, that was that, and so we're taking a bow for the encore, and my roadie runs up, Paul's coming on. Wow. <laughs> and wall comes on, Walt comes on with a guitar <laughs> and uh you know now Now he had come on stage with us uh, with the east street band at hyde park which was thrilling and he invited me and bruce on stage with him uh at madison square garden which was thrilling but coming on my stage <laughs> and endorsing me and my band you know was just one of the thrills of my life so that's how, that, that's how that tour started. And then we ended up at the Cavern.
0: So. Now, you said, you know, you mentioned rock and roll as your religion. And it's funny. I know you're involved with Teach Rock. And I think, you know, I want to hear more about that because I always tell, I always try to explain to people. That when I was a kid, like the album, buying an album was the process. Like we would get on our bike and our moms would know and we'd drive to the record store and you'd look at that album and you'd look over the front and the back and you'd be like, I hope this frickin' thing has liner notes and I hope it has the lyrics because if it doesn't have lyrics, I'm going to be pissed. But tell me about Teach Rock because, you know, it seems you love music so much and music can be such a big part of people's lives and it, it has its own history through the years.
1: Well, yeah, we, 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 um, it, it came from the uh, the music teachers of America came to me, I don't know now, I have no sense of time, but like 15 years ago, and they, uh, Washington DC had, had, had passed this legislation called No Child Left Behind, um, because our math and science scores were so low compared to the rest of the world uh, that they, you know, this suddenly became an obsession with testing. And uh, because of that, they canceled all the arts classes in America, all the music classes, arts classes. Uh, and um, and so, um, you know, uh, they said, what, what can we do? Um, and I said, I'll tell you what, why don't we start a music history curriculum uh, which is better than a music class, because this is for all the kids, not just musicians. And, you know, just to keep the arts in the DNA of the education system, which I felt was very important uh, and, and, in fact, essential. And so we so we began to um, write uh, a music history curriculum. Um, and, 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 and we made it cross-curricular. You can do it in music class, English class, history class, social studies. Uh, it's flexible enough for every grade level. Uh, it's all free for teachers. We, we license all the videos and music worldwide. Um, there's over 250 lessons online right now. Uh, we got 40,000 teachers registered. We're now partnering with partner schools entire school systems who are putting our, our, our curriculum uh, into the system. I did a, I did a press conference two days ago with the governor of Connecticut, uh, which has now accepted it into the entire Connecticut school system as uh, is offering our curriculum. So we're really making progress with it and basically um, we just you know integrate the arts into the disciplines into the into science into math you know the basic uh, teaching method is called stem science technology engineering and math and we want to change stem to steam and add the a of arts and that's what we do you know so we have um kids uh in kindergarten who who, uh, do this uh, synesthesia uh, ex- experiment we, uh, uh, that we, we bring in. Uh, Billy Eilish um, has this condition, um, uh, where you can you, you paint what you hear. So we, we play music, we play music for kids, and they paint whatever they're feeling, you know. Um, in the, in the middle school, you know, we have a um a class using muddy waters, uh, who travel from mississippi to chicago so it's a it's a class about a kids moving into a new a new neighborhood you know uh and, and how, how how to get comfortable moving into a new neighborhood um we have uh uh the gorillas plastic on the beach uh for high school uh about uh you know uh, cleaning up the environment uh, on the beaches you know so we we, we have music we connect music to Various things, and um, make it more fun. And, and, and this, you know, I visited a partner school right before the quarantine. I've never seen anything like it. I swear to God, Steve, you should have seen this. The enthusiasm of these kids was like you've never seen in a school, and I mean from kindergarten to sixth grade, uh, they're using our, 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 our curriculum for you know various various things. And uh, one of the most exciting days of my life. Seeing it, seeing, it, after 15 years of work, seeing it actually come come to life, you know.
0: You've had such an exciting life, and I got to ask you about the Sopranos. I've had a few guests on my show: Ray Abruzzo, Chris Caldavino, uh, Matthew De Negro. They always said, "How oh, the Sopranos." Once they were on there, people just recognize them everywhere. How did you end up being on The Sopranos? And I guarantee there's some people that when they started watching The Sopranos, they probably didn't know you were in the East Street Band. They probably said, "Who's that guy? We've never seen that actor before." How? Did, now, were you originally up for the lead? Is that true?
1: Yeah, yeah, I was, and then HBO was like, "Are you out of your fucking mind?" You know, (laughs) this guy never acted before, and uh, we're spending—you know—it was a a big expense for HBO. They—they were this little station when we started. You know, they were—they had a football show and a couple of movies. You know, Uh, you know they weren't the the big powerhouse they are now. So, so they were—you know—they were very reluctant to let me. Be the star, thankfully, because things worked out the way they, they should have worked out. Um, but after that, um, David said, You know, they won't let me cast you, so um, I'll give you any other part you want. You know, what, what do you want? And I started thinking about it really for the first time, because it had been such a surreal experience up until then. I said, You know, I feel guilty taking an actor's job. I really shouldn't do that. Uh, you, you know, my wife's an actor, it's for real. I've seen her go to school. Uh, You know, she goes off off off-Broadway. She's working all the time. You know, here comes this hippie guitar player. You're going to take somebody's job. That's not right, you know? So um, he says, all right, I'll tell you what then. You're not going to take anybody's job. I'm going to write you a part (laughs) just for you. (laughs) So uh, he says, what do you want to do? I said, well, I never really thought about acting, but I had thought about writing and you know, maybe someday directing. Uh, I'd written a script, a treatment, really, of this independent hitman named Silvio Dante that has a club. And it's like uh, the old Copacabana, you know, big bands, uh, you know, Jewish Catskill comics, uh, dancing girls, you know. He kind of lives in the past, but it's a present day. But it's kind of, a, you know, you're walking into the past when you walk into this club, and uh, you know, all the five families have a table. You know, and then a lot of drama goes on in the club. Yeah, it's kind of like a mob version of Casablanca, you know. And he says, "All right." He comes back a couple of days later, and he says, uh, uh, "It's too expensive, HBO. You know, for, for them. But we'll make it a strip club. And uh, <laughs> you'll run a strip club for the family. And uh, you know, and that was it." You know, and I ended up we we kind of kind of transformed them into the constabulary and the underboss, and uh, you know that was it. What was it like acting
0: for you? Because you know you're used to playing in front of a live audience and that instant gratification. Acting, if you're doing a scene, first of all, you're always inside your head. You're like, am I fucking this up? Or am I, am, I, am I laying my lines out right? And then you're working with someone like Gandolfini, who people who have worked with him have told me he's just a beast. I mean, that's, he's just such a talented guy. What is it like for you when you're sitting there and you're waiting for And they're just going, come on. Well,
1: it's not so much that. It's not so much uh, missing the audience. But what's really freaky is, is um, not being able to see what you do. You know, in, you know, in in music, you know, you go in the studio, you sing a song, or you play a guitar part. You come in the control room, you listen to it, and you think, oh, "Let me try it again. Maybe I can do it better." You know, in acting, you act, and uh, you see it six months later. You know, uh, and, and 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 you have you're depending on the director. You know, you have to get used to the fact that if he likes it. You know, if he's happy, you're happy, and I, and I and I couldn't get my mind around that. I'm like, how does he know I'm doing it as good as I can do it? You know what I mean? It's a complete stranger. But you had to adjust. You had to adjust to trusting the director. If they were happy, you're happy, period. And then you see it six months later, and then you you learn, you know, well, maybe I should do this, maybe I should do that. But but uh it was so it was freaky to trust. Learn to trust somebody that much, and I also had to trust that the scripts were going to be good. You know, I thought to myself, the first script is good. What if the second one sucks? You know, <laughs> and I was, I was talking to a friend of mine who was like, who was like, you know, my my mentor, uh, my consigliere, and uh, I said, Frankie, I said, you know, what if the second script sucks? he says you walk away that's all <laughs> you know what are you going to do we're going to put you in jail for not acting <laughs> so, so that, you know so that was it I kind of relaxed I just went with it but um, it's a you know it's a, it was a new craft to learn and as I've said a million times you know you did a scene with Jimmy Gandolfini you walked away a better actor you know uh, I mean it was just it turned out to be the greatest acting school in the world um uh, you know, and I and I took it. I took it very seriously, and you know, I had to learn a new craft on the job, man, on the job. And you so took up kind of,
0: now. Most what, of my life. Do you know there, though, there was people who didn't recognize you at first. How did was that good for you? Like, did people come up to you and say, "Oh my god, it's you, little Steven. Like dice that happened with Dice Clay in *Stars Born*. Everyone's like, "Oh my god." That lady's Gaga dad was Dice Clay. I didn't know that. I'm like, how did you know that wasn't Dice Clay? It looks just like <laughs> Dice Clay. Did you have people that would come up and go, holy shit, little Steven, that was you in the Sopranos?
1: Well what, what was freaky was was that I had already been, you know, well-known as a rock star, as a rock guy for 25 years by then right you know and you're walking down the street you know and i'm i've always been at a nice comfortable low level of celebrity you know nothing big which is you know which is fine with me and uh suddenly i don't know we're on like two weeks maybe three weeks everybody stopping me on the street about sopranos 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 and I look pretty different in the show I mean you know, you know it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't obviously me you know um, but the power of TV was astounding astounding you're not you cannot possibly uh, be prepared for that I mean two weeks on the air and boom you know the whole world knows you you know after you know after 25 years in rock and roll Gone, <laughs> meaningless. You know, <laughs> forget it. That's <laughs> that was that was that was nothing. That, you know, you were some kind of cult. You know, TV is like big time, man. You know, so it was it was interesting. It was kind of a revelation to, to, to actually witness how powerful TV is. You know, and it was, it was fun. You know, it was, it was a whole new whole new craft to learn. That you know, you never stop learning. But it was a gift, a gift from David Chase. Uh, I'll never, I'll never forget it. You
0: know. Will you revisit acting again, or are you right now? I mean, you had The Sopranos, you had The Loomer, both great shows. And I'm sorry, but you know, most actors, you know, I you, you know people have done 80 pilots, <laughs> none of them get picked up. You know, they're busting their ass <laughs> like. But this guy, you've had two <laughs> hits. Now one is getting more popular and they're both well I mean as a performer you know as a musician you, you play with the best you've written some great music as an actor yeah, you've already got to that epip- that you've written and you've helped develop a show I mean how could you walk in another set and be like wait a second I mean what do you do you want to do more acting or are you done with it
1: no I, I really do like it uh, and I'd like to do more um I, I wouldn't mind doing more Lilyhammers if, if, if Netflix wanted to um but I got, I got like five scripts I I, I I've, I've sent some out and um I'm just right now the timing I'm not sure when it would happen I mean I, I, I you know, I'm giving Bruce I always give Bruce first priority so if he wants the to tour next year you know we'll do that um if not you know the disciples of soul you know maybe we'll do something with them or I'd like to, or, or I'll do another TV show. You know, um, I'm a little bit spoiled, I must admit, after Lilyhammer. You know, when you co produce, co write, you know, star in it, and direct it, you know, do the music, you know, uh, you know, it's going to be tough to follow that act. I tell you, it's true. You know, that kind of spoiled me for life, I think. But, you know, if it's something great, you know, I would do it, and uh, I like it. I, I, I like, I like the whole acting thing. I, I really do. Um, so I, I would like to do that again when I get a chance to do it again. It's up for grabs right now. could be, could be years from now.
0: One final question: Have you missed performing live? It's been such a big part of you, and you know, and so many with artists, luckily you're in a position where it's not affecting you a lot of musicians, I have friends who are touring musicians, it's really hurt them not only because they miss performing but because they miss getting paid have you yeah. missed the whole feeling of performing or have you liked not being on stage for a while saying hey, you know what, You know, I'm going to chill and just relax and of course you're writing a book but how have you, how have you reacted to that?
1: No, I, I, I happened to be, I, I was lucky. I, I spent um, the last three years on the road, uh, you know, 2017, 18, and 19. Doing. I went right from the Soulfire tour to Summer of Sorcery tour, uh, really without stopping. So I, I, it was actually good timing for me. I'd been on the road for three straight years, uh, two tours, uh, probably the most productive three years of my life. I mean, I think I got out six album packages in these last three years and one more is coming in july the summer of sorcery live package is coming in july and then the book will come in september um so i was ready to be home for, for you know for a while I, I it was actually perfect timing for me um, um I worry about the crew. You know, the, the the crews out there is what I worry about. You know, the artists, of course, uh, one thing. You know, but the but the but the members of the crew. Uh, you know, that's another story entirely. And uh, I worry about them. But but um, I just was you know happened to be good timing. I I actually cut my tour short so we could do the E Street Band's new album, which we did. And thinking that we're going to tour summer of twenty twenty, you know, um, so we even have that. That is on the shelf, waiting, waiting to go. I mean, I mean to put it out. But, but uh, that's been you know, that's going to make for a great tour if Bruce wants to uh, next year. Um, so we got we got a lot of stuff, you know, uh, a lot of possibilities, but nothing's planned uh, this year. It's just too too freaky up and down with the with the crazy virus and you know uh, republicans refusing to take the virus now and you know i mean 70% of them decided that joe biden is not the president 70% 70 i'm like yay this which means this virus is never going away never okay uh, you know, because of these fucking idiots, but I, I, I digress. <laughs> <laughs> oh, go,
0: go. I want to hear what you think about Chris
1: Christie. <laughs> <laughs> no, so, so, um, so we'll see, we'll see what happens next year. I don't know, I don't know, it's it's completely up for grabs, but um, uh, so I, I have not missed, missed touring because I toured for three straight years right before the quarantine, so you know I've been
0: I've been okay well I want to thank you for coming on you know I uh, I I've been listening to your music I watch TV it's funny uh, Willie Garson told me a story about he never wants to meet Bruce Springsteen and you guys were at a rap party when Sex and the City was good or something and he was afraid to meet Bruce and it's just you know Willie from Sex and the City but I just I've always liked your uh, I've always loved your work and I appreciate it and Lilla is a kick ass show now you're very active on Twitter Uh, what's your Twitter handle?
1: Uh, that's Stevie Van
0: Zandt. Okay. And so I want to thank you. People go go check out Lilla Hammer. And you know what you do? You petition for a season four. Because once you watch it, you go, it shouldn't end yet. And the teacher, the guy, the one guy is just such a boob. You love it when he screws. That guy's such an idiot. The uh, your main antagonist. Oh my god, what an what an ass. You just you wanna punch him in the face. So go watch Lilla <laughs> Hammer. Go buy his box set, the Soul Fire Live, which has the uh, Macca to Mecca. Uh, Follow him on Twitter. He's always saying stuff. Listen to his radio show on Sirius. And uh, listen to me. Uh, It's coopertalk.net. You can find over 850 episodes. Email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. Twitter's at coopertalk. And remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time. Thanks.